You know I'm a big fan of everything physics. So when I heard that Bayesian stats was especially useful in quantum physics, I had to make an episode about it. You'll hear from Chris Ferry, an associate professor at the Center for Quantum Software and Information of the University of Technology, Sydney. Chris also has a foot in industry as a co-founder of EigenSystems, an Australian startup with a mission to democratize access to quantum computing. Of course, we talked about why Bayesian stats are helpful in quantum physics research and about the burning challenges in this line of research. But Chris is also a renowned author. In addition to writing Bayesian probability for babies, he's the author of Quantum Physics for Babies and Quantum Bullshit, How to Ruin Your Life with Advice from Quantum Physics. So we ended up talking about science communication, science education, and a shocking revelation about Ant-Man. A big thank you to one of my best patrons, Stefan Lawrence, for recommending me an episode with Chris. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 99, recorded January 15, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, for any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be, show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbasedance.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional and when I kick a flow mostly I'm watching eyes widen maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman. Chris Ferry, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time. I'm, I'm personally super psyched to have you on. And also, I know a lot of my patrons will be very happy to see you and hear you on the show because they have asked me for a little while now if that was possible to have you on the show. And well, apparently... Nothing is impossible in the Bayesian world. So really, <laughs> thank, thanks a lot for, for taking the time, Chris. And uh, actually, let's start by talking about what you're doing these days, right? How would you define the work you're doing nowadays? And what are the topics that you're particularly interested in? Sure, yeah. So I'm a, an associate professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm also a co-founder of a, a tech startup company. And both of these kind of have transformed me, like at least hopefully temporarily, into more of a manager than a researcher. <laughs> so the business is developing small, affordable desktop quantum emulators, trying to kind of yeah, beef up, enhance, enable new forms of teaching in quantum programming, which doesn't really exist. And as a professor, I supervise a handful of graduate students and postdocs. I made the mistake 
maybe this is like advice for early career researchers of allowing them all to select their own projects. <laughs> so I, supervising students who are all doing separate projects, all chosen by themselves, that means that they get to dive deep into their projects, but I kind of remain at the surface level. If I'd done it over again, I'd, I'd do it differently with <laughs> maybe fewer students and uh, working on topics that really interest me. But Unfortunately, that doesn't usually generate much funding because I'm interested in the foundations of quantum physics, and that's more metaphysics, or you might even say philosophy. But it's not bad. I get to help young students advance their careers and learn about new interesting topics, and uh, there's always time in the future to eventually settle down. I didn't know you you were also working on, on a tech company. Yeah, you want to tell us a bit more about that? That sounds like fun. I'm an elder millennial. I'm born in the early, early 80s. So that means uh, I have to have side gigs. <laughs> and yeah, it was something that we were interested in doing at the university because we teach quantum computing at the university. And what I realized was that it's a very abstract thing. And it's usually taught from the context of physics. And physics students are happy to, to be, just be you know do what they're told. But Computer science students are a little bit more challenging because they want to see something tangible and they want to build things and see the results of what they build. So we thought about building this kind of thing that they can interact with. And we made some prototypes and it worked really well in the context of teaching the teaching that I do. And we thought, well, and everyone we talked to in our field about this said that they wanted one too. And then that kind of led us to the idea of starting a company. So we're at, you know at the stage of of we have we have customers, we've built prototypes, we have customers are all around the world and we'll make a big announcement actually at an event called Quantum Australia and that will and then people can pre-order them hopefully for shipping later this year. So the product is a small desktop quantum emulator. Think about like the relationship between 3D printers that are in classrooms and commercial industrial scale 3D printers. So our small classroom thing is emulating the real thing. So, but it does everything that you need to do in the context of teaching, and uh, it'll come with a yeah a full kit to teach quantum programming to hopefully eventually down to the high school and elementary school levels. That's super cool, and. I'm gonna be honest that I don't. I don't think I can say I know anything about quantum computing. <laughs> so why why would you like to do that? What do you think will that allow for for better education? Basically, why would quantum computing help here? When we make projections into the future, we see that we're going to need the, the quantum industry will need lots of people, way more people than are in the pipeline now. So that this addresses that market need really. So the, the reason that we we want to do it is to address that that market need and and do something that we think is is best fit for it. Now, as an individual, why why would you buy a desktop quantum emulator and learn about quantum programming? Well, you know, I think it appeals to the hobbyist in some sense. If you're someone who like buys new tech stuff on Kickstarter, then this is the sort of thing that that you would buy because you're curious about it. Or maybe you just want to develop new skills. Eventually, it will be a subject in high school that students can choose, just like they can choose to do coding now in high school and programming. So, quantum computing is something that is, you know, it's it's a nascent field, but the 21st century will come to be known eventually as the as the quantum age as quantum technologies develop. Okay, and what will that allow us to do? 
Because <laughs> what I think the only thing I know about quantum computing is that it's supposed to allow you to supposed to allow you to compute way faster, right? And so first, I'm a bit like, do I understand that well? And yeah, just can you give us maybe a rundown on quantum computing? Well, it's not about speed. So the, there are some things that a quantum computer will be able to do that conventional we call them classical computers do. I can't do. So the individual steps that occur within a quantum computer, carrying out an instruction, is actually slower. It's the number of steps to solve a problem that are, are, are way fewer. So the device itself is slow, which means that you wouldn't want to use it for simple things like adding numbers. Like there's not going to be a quantum calculator that calculates, that does addition faster. It's more obscure mathematical problems. That people have connected to, you know, real world things like applications in cryptography, in the simulation of chemistry, those sorts of things all boil down to these mathematical problems that are difficult to solve with when you encode information digitally with ones and zeros, as you would necessarily have to do with your computer. If you encode those problems into numbers that have uh, complex numbers and real numbers and negative numbers rather than ones and zeros, then you can carry out far fewer steps to solve your problem. And a quantum computer would naturally encode those numbers and be able to carry out those steps. So it's it's select problems that you would use this device for. It's not just it's not this in the in, faster in the sense that eventually we'll have like a iPhone quantum or something like that. It, it'll be a special purpose component of a larger computer. Just like your your CPU outsources graphics calculations to the GPU, it will outsource some quantum physics calculations to the you know, QPU in the future. Thanks. Much clearer now. So yeah, and I get I get at least <laughs> the main point. So of course I've already started on <laughs> tangent tangents. <laughs> but I mean I've I have so many questions for you. One of my actually planned question was that you had a very original origin story because you claim and you wrote actually that quantum physics actually turned you into a Bayesian. So tell us why. And I'm also curious if there are any key moments that shifted your perspective. So yeah, <laughs> we've been talking about quantum physics and not Bayesian statistics. Uh, so it all started when I was a graduate student and I was interested in this field called quantum foundations. So it's kind of really trying to understand the, the deep underlying questions about quantum physics. The problem is, if you dig deep enough, you find that, that quantum physics is, is just a kind of framework built on top of probability theory. You've probably heard of things like the uncertainty principle, things like that, or that quantum physics is a probabilistic theory. And if you look at all of the debates that happen at the fundamental level and the foundational level of the field, they have more to do with the interpretation of probability than they have to do with physics. So when I was a graduate student, I thought, well, I mean, I'm not going to be able to answer these questions until I understand probability. And I suppose in, in this po podcast, I'm preaching to the choir, but I came out on the other side of that as, as a Bayesian. But like Bayesian, I would put in sort of scare quotes because nowadays you can follow the recipes in a book that uses priors and Bayes rule and has the title Bayes on it without the need to actually have an interpretation of probability at all. So it was more like, in order to answer these questions and have a satisfactory understanding of what's going on in quantum physics, you need to have an, an interpretation of probability. 
for most physicists, it's just an implied interpretation that they don't really think about. But for me, it came out with this subjective interpretation, and that really helped me understand it. But then at some point, I was talking to my thesis committee, and they, they didn't like this at all. <laughs> so most physicists, especially quantum ones, think probabilities are objective. So they told me to do something practical. So I transitioned and then tried to start to apply Bayesian statistics to pro- problems in quantum and quantum physics, which, yeah, they're, it's essentially just classical statistics with d- d- unfamiliar models and different loss functions and complex numbers are involved in, in some sense. But yeah, it's basically just a way to derive a likelihood function. Once you have a likelihood function, then you're just doing classical statistics. It's just a weird likelihood function. So I was able to apply Bayesian statistics to, to problems in quantum physics. I started from this sort of philosophical point of view and then was told to do something practical. And so then I was able to up, do some practical things in applying Bayesian statistics, quantum physics problems. Did that change the view that your supervisors had? I think to some extent it did. So the those techniques and, and tools that we developed, you know, is five, six years later, became popular and and now they're being used in the field although it's still dominated with frequentist methods yeah in my experience that's the same so usually people i talk to came to base through a practical concern for instance a phd student who was completely blocked on her paper with the classic framework and then she just tried base because, well, that was one of her last resort and it solved the, all of her problems and now she's just doing that. But that's a very practical motivation. And yeah, I see most people coming from that angle. You're actually more in the outlier side where you've been more interested in the, in the epistemological point of view and then shifted to actually doing it. And yeah, actually what I've seen is to convince people that it's actually useful, just show them. <laughs> and then they'll be like, yeah, uh, that does look good. And that does solve the problem we were having. So, you know, why not try that? Yeah. So in my experience, that's been the same too. And I'm curious, what do you, like, how, when was that, that work you, you did on practical Bayesian inference? When did you do that? Uh, that's got to be 16, 12, 16 years ago. So it kind of culminated in we built this tool. We call it QInfer, and it's basically a sequential Monte Carlo integrator that just naturally was able to solve the kinds of problems that people have in in quantum physics. So we rather than because it's quite difficult actually to use standard tools. Uh, often they don't play nice with complex numbers and things like that. Don't naturally have the kind of loss functions and, and things that we use in quantum physics, kind of matrix manipulations that we have to do. So, and, you know, at the time there wasn't that many, right? Uh, like computational Bayesian statistics is, is a relatively new thing. There was a few tools, but not, not many. And so we ended up building our own and it's, yeah, it's been used many times over the, over the years. And that was maybe 10 years ago. I stepped back from that and handed it off to the next graduate student. Yeah. That's why I asked you. When did you do that? Because just a few years ago, there, there wasn't a lot of tools to do that. So yeah, like you had, I'm guessing you had to write the algorithm from top to finish on your own, right? Yeah, and and honestly, sometimes that's that's better to do it that way. I mean, if you want to really deeply understand something, you have to build it yourself. 
you know, we can't build everything from scratch. If you want to understand particle physics, you can't go build your own particle collider. But for things that you have the capacity to build, I would always recommend building it yourself or at least attempt to and then realize what all of the problems are going to be if you wanted to make a really slick product. So get it to the point where you've built a prototype and then you really kind of deep start to deeply understand what's going on. Because a lot of times, especially with really usable products, they're really slick and they're just black boxes. And yeah, you can push the buttons and use them, but you don't end up developing a deep understanding of what's going on. Even though hopefully if you had to do that today, that would be easier. <laughs> could use building blocks instead of really just starting from scratch. And thankfully, I know... In a- yeah, I can give you an example. So I have a student an undergraduate student that I suggested trying a, a new a new method. This, uh, I mean, I'll, it's jargon, but I'm, I'm sure people have heard about it. Maybe you heard about it. The, the Stein variational gradient descent method, which is a deterministic integration method, and you know it's built into PyMC. So I, the student can go can go and try that. Although it is quite, it's still quite difficult for them to build build the quantum mechanical models that they have to build. So first, I have them build, do it from scratch and. Of course, it works to some extent, but it's not very efficient. And there, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of things that tricks that come up in numerics. Like, what, yeah, what do you do if you're trying to take a logarithm and there's a there's something close to zero, right? <laughs> then you don't want them to have to figure all those things. So have them build it first and then go, yeah, yeah. Basically, using yeah, I like that. Basically, using a version from scratch that's simplified, and then when you need to go industrialize that, well, just use the tools you have already uh, on the shelf and uh, maybe customize them if need. That's the beauty of PoMC, where you're kind of building blocks, basically, that you can personalize into your own Lego construction, in a way. Yeah, yeah for sure. But that that's awesome. Like, well done on, on doing that thing. And uh, were you already using Python at the time, 16 years ago, when you were doing your own SMC, or was it something else? The first version was built in MATLAB, but as as you might might anticipate, we ran into license issues when we were, ended up using every one of the entire university's global optimization toolbox <laughs> licenses. And so then we thought, well, this is silly. So then we moved over to Python. Now the first one, the first, yeah, the, it, it was kind of like the transition. So we had an early version built in two point seven, and then and then we moved to three. Yeah, and SMC. I know there are also some like you 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 can do that yeah for with with PyMC now. Uh, so yeah, if one of your students is interested, they can contact me and I'll direct them to the persons who who like doing that on the on the PyMC community. And you personally, do you have any specific instances to share or insights that you gained by adopting a Bayesian approach in your in your research? It's hard to know, I suppose. I mean, I, I haven't given it a lot of thought, right? Because it wasn't like I had this problem and classical techniques weren't working for me. And then I switched over and found you know a particular set of Bayesian techniques that that ended up working. I recommend it to people because a lot of times, especially when you're thinking about things deeply and foundationally, like you know what do these things mean in quantum physics? It I always go back to simple classical examples and say if you can understand this, 
or, or I guess it's a more negative thing. Like if you can't understand this, then you're not going to even have a chance at understanding the more complicated thing. So, you know, I go back to coin tosses and I say, okay, what does it mean in the context of a coin toss? And if you don't understand it there, you're not going to understand the quantum version of it. And the, yeah, the subjective interpretation of, of probability just makes things more natural. I mean, it gives you a framework for thinking about things that you can always build on rather than the classical approach, which it doesn't give you that framework at all. It's just grasping at straws and saying, okay, you know, what recipes work in this situation? And there isn't one coherent framework sitting behind it, whereas the subjective interpretation uh, gives you that. And so you might not, it does, it's not like it gives you a specific set of tools that you can apply in every situation, but it gives you that, you know, that footing, that foundation that, that you can build, build upon and, and always have that level of comfort, you know, philosophical comfort saying, I understand, I know what's going on. To build on that question, do you have a favorite study or paper of yours where you used some Bayesian stuff at one point? I'm curious to see, and I'm guessing listeners too, curious to see where Bayesian stats is useful when you do research in quantum physics. There's lots of papers. I think most of them would be readable for someone coming from Bayesian statistics without without knowledge of quantum physics, because again, I try to I try to frame it in this way where the quantum physics the only point of the quantum physics is to arrive at the likelihood function, and once you have that, then you can just do all the things that you're used to doing. Is it because your likelihood functions are always extremely exotic? Standard simple quantum experiment. Is would be about estimating the parameter in a multinomial distribution. So you can think of a quantum experiment as rolling a die and trying to estimate the the probabilities for the faces of the die. Yeah, but the thing is, we have like loss functions that there's some matrices and things in there. And then the the, the issue is like we have these loss functions that aren't aren't ever used in in classical statistics, and so a lot of the results. Just don't apply. So you, you know, sometimes appeal to the law of large numbers or, or or some of these theorems, but they, strictly speaking, our models don't really adhere to those the assumptions that go into those theorems. So not only do we have weird loss functions that that the allowed probabilities for the faces of the of the die are constrained in in a weird way that relates to a positivity of some matrix that sits down the, down the pipeline. So oftentimes you would, if you did it naively, you would end up estimating things that make probabilities negative, which obviously doesn't make sense. So yeah, there's weird constraints. There's in atypical statistical models, and then the loss functions that we use are quite different. So, but you know, if you know enough statistics and can accept that there are different, the, the possibilities extend beyond what you're used to, then you can work with it. A lot of times the things that you'd naturally try don't, don't work, but it is still just a, a classical statistical problem. There was one paper where we were trying to find another way to phrase a, a standard problem in at parameter estimation in quantum physics is the parameter that you're trying to estimate is itself a, a matrix. So it's not a real value. It's not a real valued vector. It's a complex valued matrix. And that's the thing you're trying to estimate. So if, I don't know if you do, if you're doing like density estimation, that sort of thing, it's similar to that. But we wanted to find the, like the Bayes estimator for a particular loss function that involves like square roots of matrices and traces of them. And, and 
if you assume that all the matrices are diagonal, then you, you're back to a classical statistical problem and you end up with this funny loss function for classical probabilities that's, yeah, it's somewhat related to some loss functions that are used in learning theory. And then we said, oh, well, people actually haven't found the Bayes estimator or to say the minimax estimator for that particular function. So our quantum result immediately implied a, a result just that was purely classical. And the papers title the papers estimating the bias of a noisy coin. So it's this actually crops up in some social studies. So if I if I ask you if you cheat on your taxes, you're gonna say no. So how do they do the sampling? What they do is they they introduce some randomness. So they they'll say, okay, roll a die. If the die comes up one, say yes no matter what. And so that the person who says yes can always claim that the die came up one. And so they feel like they have, they can be honest. But if that probability of people cheating is really low, then you might get only one or two people saying yes. But one in six times they were supposed to say yes anyway. So if you just naively kind of did method of methods of moments or some linear inversion, you would come up with negative probabilities. So this is exactly a problem that's embedded in a in a quantum mechanical problem, and so sometimes you know there's sometimes there's some nice overlap. That sounds like fun, and for sure, if you can add these uh, papers to the show notes, please do because I'm pretty sure listeners are, are going to be happy to to check those out. I already put some cool links in in the show notes for people, but definitely papers are always appreciated. So feel free to feel free to do that. This is a a safe place where we can all share our love for academic papers, Chris. <laughs> right. do it. I should warn the listeners, though. Yeah, a lot of them are they're cavalier, like a like a typical physicist. So it's very we yeah we often take a conceptual sort of approach to these things. Okay, interesting. Well, I'll read it because yeah, it must be pretty different from a statistics paper. But I don't think I've ever read a quantum physics paper. <laughs> I think I'm going to start by your books, though, your books for children. I'm embarrassed to say I think I'm going to learn a lot from them. So I'm going to start by that and work my way up to your papers. Sounds much, much clearer. And maybe before actually talking about a, a bit more about quantum physics and, and what you do and also the, the work you do on your, your children's books, but also science communication in general, I'd like to keep talking a bit more about Bayesian stats because I'm curious. I'm always curious when I talk to a practitioner like you, and so someone who is not by training a statistician, but someone who really uses Bayesian statistics for their area of expertise. What do you see as the biggest pain points in the Bayesian workflow right now? As I mentioned before, the the software that is typically used off the shelf doesn't accommodate. But the quirks and, and things that come up in quantum models. So some of them, they just won't accept complex numbers, for example. So when I first attempted to use TensorFlow way back, TensorFlow 1, was, you couldn't even use complex numbers, right? <laughs> so a lot of times you're like forced to go back to the source code. And at that point, it's like you might as well just built it yourself. So it's, yeah, complex numbers, matrix manipulations. We often have, as I said, lots of constraints and when you attempt to use something out of the box, you know if it works at all, your whole screen is filled with warnings, and it isn't as nice as the demos of the software. So I think for me, and possibly for people that that are are running models with with lots of constraints, 
this is the biggest pain point at the moment is that yeah the obviously the models will, will the software will accommodate constraints but it doesn't seem to do so in a, in a way that's that's natural and, and easy so ideally that like in an ideal world that would be what you what you'd like to see to help adoption of patient techniques a really concrete example would be you know i want to do sequential monte carlo on some Simple estimate, say, I'm doing an experiment where I roll a die several times and I want to estimate the probabilities. It's of some biased die, but the probabilities come with a, you know, a long list of linear constraints. So not, not any, any probability will do. When you're doing the resampling, what is it that the software is doing to accommodate those constraints, right? So the, the, you know, the standard approach is like, well, it doesn't really matter because there is no constraints. And so you can just throw a Gaussian on it and, it, nothing. Yeah, it's it's simple, but when you have these constraints, yeah, it makes it makes things far more challenging, and sometimes the software just doesn't doesn't accommodate those. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> I understand your pain. I'd like to, you know, make your wish come true, but that's a hard one because in here you kind of like you're hitting a limitation. I would say of the development process where you have to choose at some point if your package is going to be general or specific and packages like stand, PyMC, TensorFlow, they have to be general because they are adopted by so many people with so many different backgrounds and so many different uses that we have to make choices that are going to work for most people and that are going to be optimal for most use cases. But that means for sure it's like if you're trying to accommodate everybody, nobody's going to be accommodated perfectly. Right. So, yeah, like it seems to me like someone should go there and basically build a package on top of PyMC that just like addresses what you folks' pain points are in quantum physics, basically. I know there is such a package for astrophysicists. Of course, I don't remember the package name right now, but I'll, I'll try to remember and put that in the show notes. And I know that package built on top of PyMC is really, really used a lot in the astrophysics field. I'm not aware of any package like that in the quantum physics realm, but if any listeners do about that, please reach out to me and I'll, I'll pass that on to Chris. I'm sure his PhD students That'd are going to be grateful. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, or if anybody wants to do that, well, get in contact with Chris. I'm sure he would have uh, valuable uh, points for you <laughs> about what he'd like to see in particular. There's a research question in there as well, right? At least when we were doing it, that particular method that we were using, it was never applied or, or, or developed in the context of constraints. And so what, what you do when you're faced with constraints is I, at the time anyway, it was like sort of an open research question. So yeah, it's it's fair that <laughs> it's fair that it, the software just doesn't solve it for you because it may not be as there may not be an actual solution yet. So now I'd like to ask you a bit more about quantum physics per se, because well, I'm always very curious about about physics. So what in your you know in your line of research, what are the biggest questions that Biggest challenging you face currently? We're at this weird transition point in the field of quantum technology where we can't, in laboratories, university laboratories, build bigger devices. So we kind of count the power of a quantum computer in the number of quantum bits or qubits that we can control. And 
it's nowadays it's very easy to get one qubit. I mean, 15, 20 years ago, that was very difficult. But now there are many different modalities, trapping atoms, using states of light, all of these sorts of things can now be used to encode a single qubit. And that can be done in, in the standard physics lab. Going beyond that becomes more difficult and you need much more funding to do it. But going much further beyond that is not, not a possibility within an academic context. And so you need some large government organization or collaboration to do it, or you need uh, industry to take, to take over. So we're, we're at that cusp where the largest devices are ones that are be, being developed by companies. Companies like IBM, Google, startup companies like Rigetti, IonQ. There's a, there's a whole host of them now. And what they're doing, obviously, is secret now. So it's a weird place to be. I can't tell you. I can make, I can make guesses about, about where they are, what they're doing, what their problems are. But you know, if they wanted my help, I'd, I'd have to sign an NDA or they'd have to pay me and I wouldn't be able to tell you. So we've kind of transitioned into this new time in the last five to 10 years where, yeah, we've, we're moving out of university research labs into government and company and multinational company R&D labs. And they have the same problems, but at a larger scale that, that university researchers had, which is just that to maintain a, the state of an isolated quantum system is very difficult. Any interaction, like some cosmic ray that comes in that you obviously can't control, will degrade the information that's being encoded in these systems. And so they're very fragile. We need to work out ways to provide better isolation, but complete isolation is not good either because you actually you have to control them to carry out the instructions that you you want. So it's kind of this catch twenty two where you want it to be completely isolated from everything except for when you want to actually go in there and manipulate it in some way. So these are the problems, and I think theoretically there's still that that big question about can it even be done? Can we even build a a quantum computer? There doesn't seem to be a reason why. If it turns out that we couldn't, we'd learn a lot about the nature of reality and the reason for why that's the case. But that, yeah, these are the sort of big questions that I think have the potential to be answered in my lifetime. Can we build a large-scale, you know, fault-tolerant, error-corrected quantum computer that carries out some calculation that would have been impossible to carry out with digital electronics? That's really fascinating. And I'm really impressed by the depth and the width of, of topics in, in the research of physics. It's just incredible. And I, I would refer to listeners to episode 93 that I did at CERN the summer, I mean, 2023 summer, where we went deep on what do they do at CERN, what type of research, what does that mean, why even do that? And you'll see, well, some you know, cross topics with what Chris is talking about, but also uh, things that are completely different. And it's just incredible to see how how wide these fields are. And that, that sounds, to me, that's pretty incredible because in the end, that's just trying to understand the universe. So it's kind of doing the same thing, but it brings you to directions that are completely 
completely different. And that, that's really the funny, one of the fascinating things, I think, of these topics. And of course, go to the video version of the, the episode 93. You have the audio version if you have, but that was a video documentary inside CERN. So I highly recommend checking out the YouTube link that I will put in the show notes. And actually, I'm curious, Chris, about also because now, you, as you were saying, you cannot have a management role, which implies thinking a lot about the future. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, where do you see the field of quantum mechanics headed in the next decade? And also, maybe how do you see Bayesian stats still uh, helping in this, in this endeavor? Much like astronomy, for example, Bayesian techniques will see a wider adoption. Because at the moment, the way that a laboratory quantum physics experiment happens is it's kind of really foreign to someone who does like machine learning or, or data science, where you have some data set and then you need to analyze it. No, what they do in, in labs, in physics departments is like, if the data isn't what you wanted, then you just throw it out and start again. And and you work until you have like really clean data sets. So all of the problems with data sets, things like that don't happen in physics labs. The physicists want to see the answer in their data. So the, the really sort of data scarce regime is unacceptable to them. They need to see it on an oscilloscope or something, right? Like the probability distributions essentially have to be delta functions for them before they accept that the experiment actually worked. But that's because we're doing really small scale experiments. Once those experiments grow and, be, and become large, we won't be able to do that anymore, right? Like if a, an experiment takes a week to run, you're not going to say do it over again until you, you see a nicer data. You're just going to have to accept that that's the data set and you have to get as much information out of it as possible. And that's going to require utilizing the assumptions that you're making in a sensible way, which will lead you to sort of Bayesian techniques. I think we will see wider and wider adoption within the quantum research fields of Bayesian techniques going into the future, much like we have in the last decade, two decades in astronomy. Yeah, fascinating. And I mean, I really hope that these big questions you were talking about are going to be answered, at least some of them, because I'm just so curious about about that, you know, like that, yeah, that would be just fascinating to have some of, some of these answers at least come our way in the, in the coming years. Mainly, I would say personally, I'm I'm very interested in the the interaction of relativity and and quantum physics and how how you can merge that. And so, that's definitely it would be incredible to at least understand that a bit better. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that how do you how do you do the experiments on uh, on this realm? For now, it's just super <laughs> super complicated. Those are huge questions. I don't even think we've really formulated the questions. Correctly, I mean that's sort of my my take on it. We have a theory that works really well at the moment. In every regime we can test, our current best model quantum field theory works incredibly well. It's places that we don't even understand, like inside the event horizon of a black hole. In principle, we you know we can't even go there to get the data that we would need to find out if the theory works there. You know, there's very various takes on it. It's just sort of a pessimistic take, which is like, you know, maybe we've hit the limits of, of what we can understand given our capabilities in the universe. And then, yeah, a, a more positive view is like, well, 
eventually someone will come up with some idea where there is something that nobody could have seen seen coming. That's typically how paradigm shifts have worked in the past. So there's no reason to to think pessimistically that that will stop. But who knows, it might be the case. I do hope for the second option, but you can never know. <laughs> I love the fact that you do a lot of science communication. Of course, it's also a, so it's always something I'm very happy to talk about in I'm wondering if there are some common misconceptions you, you've seen about quantum physics, uh, maybe even about patient stats that you often encounter, and how do you usually address them? I wrote an entire book, for not for children. <laughs> you, may, you may have to edit this part out, because the book's called Quantum Bullshit. I don't know if, you, <laughs> if that's allowed in the podcast. That's all good. Yeah, I'm, I'm French, you know, so we have no worries with uh, swear words. <laughs> that's the, the title of the book. The subtitle is, it's a bit, it's kind of a kind of science comedy. So the subtitle is How to Ruin Your Life with Advice from Quantum Physics. And it, it kind of goes through a lot of the common misconceptions and how each of these major concepts in quantum physics are misused. Things like superposition, entanglement, quantum energy, quantum uncertainty, these sorts of things, how they typically are misused. And what's the most sensible kind of way to understand them without having the mathematical background that underpins the the framework of the theory? So yeah, there's lots of them. And <laughs> if you want the comprehensive list, definitely definitely check out the book. I can give you like it, a t- typical example is the idea that superposition means things can be in two places at once, and that just so like just saying it out loud should make it clear that that's a logical contradiction because you know <laughs> it's a, a dichotomy between yeah yeah true and false and you can't have things something that's both true and false so sort of a logical contradiction but that being said you still physicists will still say things that sound kind of like that so an example might be this famous double slit experiment where you have some sort of screen it has two holes in it and you fire electrons at it and you see an interference pattern on the other side instead of just two dots where the electrons landed, suggesting that the particles interfere with each other. And if you do it one particle at a time, that means it had to interfere with itself, which means it had to have gone through both slits at the same time. So the electron had, or whatever particle it is, had to be in both of those places at the same time. But we always run into these problems when we try to explain what's going on in quantum physics by analogy to our everyday world. It's a different world that we don't have access to. We don't have a, a language and a familiarity with. So we have to use these analogies, but you know, they quick very quickly break down. So that's absolutely not what's happening. And things can't be in two places at once. And yeah, you shouldn't buy a quantum crystal or something because it promises that <laughs> that it can do that. Yeah, sure. And for the ba- like Bayesian I find actually, yeah, but so you know, when you, you can kind of explain to people the way I do it now is to, yeah, walk through that idea that in quantum physics, we have these concepts and we have to use a language that we're familiar with, but that language isn't really suited for trying to do anything beyond explain that one special thing. You can't extrapolate using those analogies because you'll quickly fall prey to misconceptions. So that's typically how I explain it in the context of quantum physics. And quantum physics is actually quite popular in the in the popular popular culture. I don't find that Bayesian probability is so popular in popular culture. So you know the word quantum 
crops up all the time attached to things. Nobody's selling Bayesian healing crystals. So these aren't like popular, <laughs> popular. Oh, that's actually not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to approach it the same way because you're not typically talking to a lay audience when you're talking about misconceptions and Bayesian probability. Usually it's someone like technically minded who knows who knows something about about some technical topic that the probability is being applied to or probability itself. And in physics, the main problem that people have, yeah, you could call it a misconception, is that Bayesian methods are subjective, whereas frequentist methods are objective. And as a scientist, you need to strive for objectivity. So that means that you shouldn't use Bayesian methods and you have to use frequentist methods. But the easy thing to point out is to that what you what you could do is just have them walk through how they would apply frequentist methods and then point out that they had options and then they made their subjective judgments on which options they were going to choose to solve their problem. So it's no less subjective. Uh, and in some sense, it's it's worse in the sense that you're not being honest about the biases that are going into what you're doing. So yes, Bayesian methods are absolutely subjective, but they're subjective in the most honest way possible. Yeah. It's usually the, the way I go about it also. Uh, the faster you're going to abandon the idea that there is an objective way of seeing reality, at least the way we are made, you know, if you're Homo sapiens, the, the faster you'll, you'll be able to think about real ways to actually try to understand what's going on. And so, yeah, it's usually the way I, I go about it. But yeah, I mean, these are fascinating topics. I We've actually covered some of them <laughs> in some of the episodes we've already done on the show. So one, one before you was episode 97 with Alan Downey, where uh, he actually talked about that, where he, he was like, he has also a, a blog post about it, comparing this idea that Bayesian results converge to the frequentist results um to the limit and so that was interesting to talk about it with him because he actually argues that it's never the same <laughs> and uh, that's not a problem you should still choose the Bayesian framework actually but that was interesting so you have that for people interested and also i'll put in the show notes so i'll put that one and i'll put in the show notes episode 50 and 51 50 was with Aubrey Clayton, who wrote an amazing book called Bernoulli's Fallacy and the Crisis of Modern Science. So that's more about the history of statistics and, and how and why frequency statistics came to, came to dominate the scientific world. So much more epistemological, very, very fascinating book. And episode 51 was with uh, Sir only sir we've had on the podcast, I think, Sir David Spiegelhalter about risk communication, how to talk about risk, especially to a lay audience and people who are not educated in stats or in the scientific method. That was way closer to the COVID pandemic. So that was very interesting to talk about that with him because these topics were absolutely important in time of pandemic or very stressful situations, right? Who would think so, right? That the nerds actually had tried all along to talk about stats and probabilities. This is this can save you during a pandemic. But yeah, this is also something that I think must be added in these discussions. Like often it's not really in the 
papers that you see these misconceptions, but it's more in the way the papers are interpreted by people who are not equipped to read the papers. And so I think there is a, a job in the world that needs to be filled, which is basically making the bridge between scientific papers and then what ends up in the papers, in the newspapers. And that is a bridge that still has to be built. And we're trying to do that in a way with our work, but it's just like, it's still so much, so much things to do still. And most of the time, sometimes my game is really to do that. It's try and see what people are talking about on Instagram or stuff like that. And then actually try and go to the source that they are supposed to quote, you know, to cite. And then you see that basically it's just like the first person who reported on the paper did understand the paper or just read the abstract in the title. And then just everybody cite that first source. So basically the first error is just like trickled down. And that's just fascinating. Yeah, I think I think the, the solution has to sort of include actually that we'll write fewer papers. There's over a million academic journal articles published every year, and that's more than than we can read, right? So there's the perverse incentives in academia now that kind of force you to do this, which means also that like most of the most of those papers shouldn't have been written and didn't need to be written. I think it, it would be better if we had a more careful approach where the result is fewer papers that are better written. Couldn't agree more. And also it's something we've talked about on the podcast several times, incentives in, in, acad- in academia. is hard to change, but needs to be changed. But yeah, hopefully that will. And having people like you in, in academia definitely helps. And well, hopefully we with time, it's going to evolve. But yeah, and we could continue on that road, but it's going to be a three hours episode and I don't want to take too much time to you. And actually, that's a very, it's the very first episode that we do where we are actually time traveling, right? Because it's still January 15 for me at night and it is January 16 in the morning for Chris. So thank you for calling from the future, Chris. We solved Laplace's problem. The, the sun rises tomorrow. <laughs> I can. Tell yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see for now no apocalypse. So that's cool. <laughs> I'm glad about that. Yeah, I had other things to add about your your very good points about communication and so on. But of course, I think I forgot about them. I will just refer people to the the show notes. I'm, I'm going to put the the episodes I mentioned in there. And Oh yeah, one thing, I tracked down the Python package I was talking about for astrophysics. So the package is actually called Exoplanet. And yeah, it's a package that's built on top of PyMC to do probabilistic modeling of time series data in astronomy with a focus on observations of exoplanets. So I put the notes, the link already in the show notes, and that's developed mainly by Dan Furman Mackey. So yeah. People who are working on that definitely take a look. That's a very cool package, very, very well maintained. So Chris, I've already taken a lot of time from, from you, but I'm curious. I want to talk a bit about your children's book, of course. Uh, you've written about quantum physics, about general relativity, Bayesian statistics. Also, you've written a book, I think, about that. First, I'm definitely going to buy those books if one day I have kids. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. I'm not going to read them uh, stories about crystals and things like that. Much more 
but that kind of thing. <laughs> no, first, like uh, kidding aside, that I think that's a very good service you're making because definitely there is a big lack of scientific culture. I would say in, in general in the audience, just understanding probability. You know, like the main thing I have to face is often you know things like, well, you said that thing would happen with a thirty percent chance. It didn't happen. Hence, the model was wrong. And that's just like this kind of the, this part of the misconceptions on part of <laughs> is the burden of a statistician. But I think it's extremely important to make people more aware of the scientific methods, more scientific savvy. First, because it's way more interesting than what pop culture makes it look like. You know, you don't have to be crazy. You don't have to wear a white coat. You don't have to be a genius to understand science and you don't have to be a genius to use science. So extremely important what you're doing and mainly to go to my question, how do you approach simplifying such complex topics for young minds? And yeah, how do you think about the way you, you teach that? I think you hit on a lot of good points, but there's a lot of obvious traps that people fall into, right? That you might think, well, science that is boring, so we need to spice it up. This happens all the time. If you see scientists on like daytime television or whatever, they inevitably do some chemistry experiment where there's some explosion and gives people a really distorted view of what science is. Not only is it people think that it's old white dudes in lab coats and geniuses, but also people have this misconception that it's all about excitement and explosions and chemical reactions and cosmic awesomeness. But you know, science is at its core this this fundamental framework for navigating the world in the most sensible way possible. So when I approach the children's books, I try to really simplify not only the concepts, but just that overall sense of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to create some you know extrapolated vision, some way too exciting picture of what science is. What I try to do is I try to give examples, analogies, categories, you know, kind of abstract things that give people some comfort, some tools that they can use to try to understand or appreciate what's happening in these fields. So in saying that, it becomes obvious that the books are for parents, not necessarily for babies. And I think a lot of the feedback that I get is from parents who say things like, oh, I wish I had learned this topic in school in this way, right? And, you know, it all boils down to the, this notion that when we learn things, what we're doing is just building up our repertoire of analogies that we can use to understand them. And the more that you have, the better. The sooner you start, the better. I think there is a misconception that like there's one unique special way to understand a concept and if it's only told to you in that way some light bulb moment will happen in which you all of a sudden understand it but that's just not how it works in reality how it works is at some point in the future you say oh i feel like i understand that there wasn't a turning point there wasn't a light bulb moment there wasn't a switch it was just time and and building up those analogies and examples that at some point you just feel comfortable and that's all there is to it. So it's actually surprisingly easy. It's a lot easier than people think because the task that I set myself is 
is not such a high bar. You know, just give a, a simple, palatable analogy for some core concept in the thing that you're talking about that anyone can understand. Extremely important. So thanks a lot for doing that. And I do think that it's very important to make science more look more human and write it more and more approachable because I often people see that as very dry endeavor, but I think actually counting stories about science and scientists and normal scientists, right? Not the <laughs> weird scientists from the movies is extremely important because that's also how we learn, right? We learn a lot. Our brain is like that. We love stories and we love learning through stories. And like every equation you learned at school has actually a story behind it. Lots of people have worked on it. Lots of people have failed and depressed because they couldn't, they couldn't find the solution. And, and thanks to their work, then afterwards it unblocked a lot of things that you can actually do now. Just knowing about gener about relativity makes, makes us able to be located through our phone. Right? We can use the GPS very accurately because we actually take into account relativity. Well, that's, it's, it's pretty incredible, right? But I'm guessing most people don't know that. So yeah, I think it's extremely important. And actually I've watched very recently a series, a Netflix series that does an extremely good job I found illustrating science like that. So it's still, of course, romanticized a bit, but first the physics that's in the show is pretty good and accurate. You know, they don't revert to absolutely completely crazy theories because I mean, the series is called Lost in Space and the pitch is, so, you know, it, something like happened on earth. I'm not going to spoil it, but something happened on earth. And then some people had to go and try and colonize Alpha Centauri. And we follow the adventures of the families who do that. And uh, the science is pretty good on that. And also the depiction of the science is, I found, very interesting. You have some very interesting scenes, right? Where it's like, oh, that's, that's magic. That's not magic. That's math. That was really cool. You know, I'm not going to spoil, but I, I definitely recommend this series. It's, it's really well done. And of course, well, your book, Chris. We can call it a show, I think, because I've already taken a lot of time from you. And for people watching the video, you can see that the sun is setting down <laughs> for me. So the, the luminosity is, is getting down. But I'd like, so before the last two question, my last question would be a bit of a general one. If you have any advice, Chris, for students or young researchers interested in quantum physics or even Bayesian statistics, what advice would you give them to start in these fields? Yeah, I think for young people that have time on their hands, my advice is quite simple, is to study mathematics. Mathematics is obviously the foundation of statistics, also the foundation of quantum physics and all of physics. I see students coming into university who are very excited about science. They come in, they say, oh, I've read you know, all of Brian Greene's books and Stephen Hawking's books, and uh, I'm here to be a scientist. I live to be a quantum physicist. And then you hand them a test with only math problems on it, <laughs> and they get very deflated because nobody told them that it was all about math. So it's the way that, that I came into the field. I was never really interested in physics or science. I was a math student. And when I finished my degree, it was more about how am I going to apply my skills in solving math problems. 
that served me very well. So yeah, become proficient mathematics. There's lots of fun stuff in mathematics when you, you know, at the surface level, depending on the way it's taught, can feel boring. And but yeah, the further you dig deep into it, the the more interesting and more exciting it gets. And it will provide you with a deeper understanding of the field that you end up applying it to than you could have ever imagined, and certainly more so than the than the people that are just still at that surface level. So yeah, that would be my my advice. Also, you know, for especially for young people, for students, life is very long, and now is the time for that you're encouraged to make mistakes, and it's really the only time in your life where you can make mistakes and get you know, rapid feedback. And that's the thing that's encouraged. And that's the best way to learn. So approach it from that perspective and also drag it out as long as you possibly can. Completely agree with these, with these recommendations. Learn math and learn it well and take risks. Take risks very, very young and for the most time you can. Because yeah, that's definitely... Definitely helpful. Even financially, a good financial advice. If you have to take risks and put all most of your money on stocks, that would be when you're young. And then when you get older, you get a bit less, a bit more risk averse in your portfolio investment. Well, that I would say that's the same thing for life and for rapid feedback and failure when you're young and not have any responsibilities. Do that. You know, take the risks and learn math. <laughs> that's not a risk at all. Uh, awesome, Chris. Well, I'm gonna let you go, but before that. I'm going to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. First one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? I think that's easy. At least in my discipline, I would I would build a large-scale quantum computer and then I would set it on the task of simulating various materials until it found a high-temperature or room-temperature superconducting material. And then we'd build that and go have free energy around the world. <laughs> that sounds nice. I love that. <laughs> yeah, awesome. You're the first one to answer that, but love it. And second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? These sorts of questions I think are, are difficult, especially for like a, for like someone with an analytical brain. You know, you got the, the one, the devil on your shoulder saying, yeah, play along. It's a whimsical game. And I've thought about this actually. So, I think there'd be some inherent problems with obviously with a, with a dead scientist. <laughs> you know, there's obvious problems, but I think the ones that people don't think about are say, you know, I brought what I guess this is a magical scenario, but I don't know if it's I go back in time or they come to our time, but it, in some sense it doesn't matter. So I would prefer they come to our time because, you know, if go far enough in the past and they don't even have toilets. So let's bring them to our time. But there's a problem like if I brought Einstein here, what would I have to do? Would I have to explain a century of advancements in like the actual field that he came up with? And would he even accept it? Like even in his lifetime, he refused to accept all of the consequences of quantum physics. So it actually wouldn't be a great conversation. Like I think you know, scientists from the past would just be it would be too difficult to communicate even if you could magically overcome say some language barrier like they yeah you know, the contributions they made obviously are timeless but like that conversation that you could have wouldn't be very insightful so you, i feel like you'd have to go with a living scientist but then the problem with a living scientist is is like i can just email them if i had a specific question <laughs> so it seems like oh yeah but you, you cannot eat far more <laughs> far easier than organizing some dinner which you know you can have when you go to conferences anyway so you know i've been 
to dinner with Nobel laureates and stuff and celebrity scientists. And one of them was, was probably enough. So then I think you're, you're forced to go with a fictional, a fictional character. I don't know how many of your guests pick a fictional character, but my favorite fictional character with the self-proclaimed great mind is uh, Marvin, the paranoid android from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I'd have dinner with Marvin and I, I know exactly what I'd ask him to. I'd ask him about AI alignment because mm-hmm. I think it seems to, he seems to have been solved with Marvin and I think he would just give a, a wonderfully nihilistic answer to what is AI alignment. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'd take part in this dinner. Let me know when that happens. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You want oh, you want a bonus question? Physics related a choice like that we had to make last time. We did a retreat at at PIMC Labs. We do a retreat every year, and of course, it's just a bunch of nerds getting together. So we always end up with very nerdy questions. And yeah, this year I think one of the main questions was so yeah, the year before one of the main questions was. Who would win in a in a plane war? So in an airplane war, Earth Earth or Jupiterians? And this year, but the the one I want your input on is this year was if you could choose between these three options, would which one would you choose? If you could know what it's like to be in the quantum realm, or if you could go inside a black hole and know what's there, or if you could go to an alien planet and meet them and talk with them, what would you choose? There's only one correct choice. It's the third one because <laughs> the other two would be bad decisions. So it's the alien planet, yeah. But there is no quantum realm. I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a blog post about that. I'll give you the link for the listeners. Oh, You can't go there, obviously. I mean, there's technical challenges clearly with shrinking a human, but also, yeah, our, our entire sense of perception is built on our mesoscopic relationship with, with the world. And yeah, there would be like, clearly there'd be no sound, there'd be no notion of sight. So even if, even if you could get around this sort of weird idea of shrinking yourself, it wouldn't be a place to experience. And then inside a black hole, every direction points down and you'd be spaghettified. And so it's a bad idea. <laughs> so let's I mean, go I love to the past that, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's a technical term actually. Spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm shocked by the revelation you just made on this podcast that Ant Man is not a documentary. That's (laughs) just, I'm just shocked. (laughs) So I think it's time to stop the podcast. First, because I don't have any more lies. And second, because, well, I've, I've taken a lot of time from you. Thanks a lot, Chris. That was, uh, that was really awesome. I learned, um, like we covered a lot of, of topics. So that, that was really perfect. As usual, I put resources and a link to our website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Chris, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. 
I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.